Welcome to Tesseract Podcast, where we unlock your power to innovate. Hi, my name is Matt, and I'm going to be your host today. Tesseract's mission is to empower airmen, connect them to resources, and accelerate change across the Air Force logistics enterprise. Specifically, our team works as an innovation accelerator assigned to the Air Staff Logistics Directorate, where we partner with airmen to operationalize the new sustainment strategy. General Barno, Dr. Bensahel, thank you so much for joining us today on Tesseract Podcast. And as I was saying before we hit record, um, you two have been foundational in, in my education when it comes to military adaptation and innovation. Uh, so it, it feels like I'm coming full circle here in a lot of different ways, but I'm extremely appreciative for both of you. Thank you so much. It's great awesome. to be here, Matt. We look, look forward to having a great conversation. So um, I'd like to start with, you know, I, I know a lot of people probably pepper you initially with technical questions and, you know, the what's the world like today, but how did you two meet? <laughs> what a great question. Um, yeah, we're sort of unusual in that we uh, decided several years ago to throw in our professional fates together and uh, have done almost all of our writing and teaching since then. We met uh, going on 10 years ago now uh, when I joined the Center for a New American Security. Uh, Dave was already there uh, as a senior fellow and I came in as the new deputy director of studies. And we started working together shortly after that and realized that for whatever you know, reason of, uh, you know, for reasons we don't entirely understand, our writing together was better than it was apart. I mean, our writing apart was pretty good, but there was a particular um, synergy that we had uh, with our writing. And so we started doing that more and more. And we left CNAS together in early 2015 uh, to be based at a university so we could spend some time teaching, but largely so we could write the book, uh, Adaptation Under Fire. Yeah, I guess I just add to that that uh, you know there were several threads of our uh, our backgrounds and careers that kind of inter interacted here. You know, I've been in the military for thirty years, Professor Bensell, Doctor Bensell. You you will hear me call her Professor Bensell because we teach together, and that's how we refer to each other in the classroom at uh, Johns Hopkins Sice. But uh, she had been with Rand for uh, ten plus years at that point in time. Had been teaching also. You'll find interesting at Georgetown in their uh, security studies program at the graduate level for about uh, 10 or 11 years as well as an adjunct. And, and I always had uh, a aspiration to teach. So not only did we start to write together in the think tank world and began to think about you know, putting together uh, a book eventually, but also, you know, I, I wanted to do some teaching at the graduate level. And the first course I proposed to her was a course on military adaptation. And so as we put that together and, and taught it the first time at Georgetown, actually, at the end of that semester, we looked at each other and we said, you know, there's not very much out there in the literature. We should write a book uh, and on military adaptation. And so that kind of began the process that uh, took us to where we are today. I'd like to start with setting the foundation of what adaptation and innovation are, are because I feel like they're conflated. Mm -hmm. in many conversations, especially in the Air Force, when we talk about accelerate, change, or lose, the word innovation is thrown around. And people now begin to think it's a buzzword. People think it's losing its meaning and value, and then also just use it in the wrong context, uh, from my opinion. Uh, can you set the record straight with us of what the two really mean? Um, well, you're right. There's a lot of confusion. People use the words interchangeably. We found that when we started diving into the literature and even just as you said, the way people use the terms in the national security community inside the Pentagon. Um, so we found, thought it was really important to define exactly what we meant. And the definition that we found most helpful was that innovation is something that happens during peacetime or at least times when you're not in active conflict. And that adaptation is something that happens once a conflict starts. So that's why you get a lot of talk about innovation, as you pointed out, in the interwar period, right, between World War I and World War II, a lot of thinking about what would happen in the next war. Um, and some of it turned out to be right, and some of it turned out to be not quite so right. What we were most interested in, though, and I'm sure we'll get into this, the, you know, the, the main question that motivated our book is, is the U.S. military adaptable enough for the challenges of the 21st century? We talk at the beginning of the book about how many things are changing, and we can go into some of that detail if you want. But we realized that, you know, the military's 
the U.S. military in particular is very good at planning. It does it spends a tremendous amount of time and effort planning for the future, and it needs to do that. But it doesn't spend anywhere nearly as much time or give nearly as much emphasis to adapting to the circumstances once they arise, once that war starts. And so that's what we wanted to focus on, because we think that, you know, the challenges that the U.S. military might be called on to face are enormous and, and that the, that potential scenario space is growing. Uh, you know, it feels like every day it gets a little bit bigger. So, you know, the more planning you do, the more you're, you're, you know, you can aim at maybe a few different points on that in that scenario space. But really, the biggest challenge for the U.S. military is going to be that it's not going to get it right in the future. And it's going to have to figure out once a conflict starts how to adapt to the reality that it's seeing on the battlefield. I think one of the unusual uh, aspects about writing the book during the period we did, we uh we actually wrote it from about 2016 to 2020, which was about two years longer than we had expected to take to write the book, naturally. Uh, but we published it, uh, sent the proofs in uh, around January of 2020, right as COVID-19 was becoming something we all had heard of and then you know took over the, the next couple of years. But we also had the advantage in a sense of writing it at the end almost of America's 20-year wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so the, that whole 20-year period uh, even though it was not a you know major conflict, wasn't total war, wasn't a World War II type of a, a challenge for for the belligerents, it was a wartime period, and so we we were able to not only look back at historical examples back into the 20th century as we kind of evaluated you know good and bad examples of adaptation in wartime that were relatively modern, relatively current, but we could look at the the contemporary conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan in the the second third of the book there and really pick that apart and look at examples of relatively current U.S. military adaptation during those wars, which is really, really interesting to do. You know, recognizing that future wars probably not going to look much like those wars that we fought in the irregular context, you know, since 9-11, but the, the lessons that they taught, taught us about how well the U.S. military could adapt any prolonged period of conflict requiring prolonged adaptation were really interesting to look at in real time. And let's dig a little deeper into really your findings over the, those couple of years you were writing and, and the foundation of doctrine, technology, and, and leadership uh, when it comes to adaptation and how that influences um, our organizational change you know, within the military. And, and then I'd want to follow up with how does culture intertwine between all of that? Because you know that's something at TestRack that we have emphasized greatly is, you know, truly changing a culture to influence doctrine, technology, and leadership. The framework of doctrine, technology, and leadership is something that Dave came up with very early in our process from his experience in the military. I mean, he knew that those three things were were foundational. And as we started writing the book, I'd push back and, you know, say, why is that? And make him explain it in more detail. And we eventually together settled that that was the right way to structure the book. The question on culture is a really good one, and we get that question all the time. Why didn't you look at organizational culture, which we know is so prevalent in lots of organizations, uh, but particularly in military organizations? And the way we saw it, culture doesn't exist independently on its own. It expresses itself through doctrine, right? The culture of the organization affects what gets into doctrine and what's considered something, you know, outside of what you should be planning for, such as the U.S. Army after Vietnam deciding that its doctrine was going to focus exclusively on large-scale conventional combat and not on irregular wars counterinsurgency that we'd had in Vietnam, right? That, that cultural preference profoundly affected what the U.S. Army's doctrine would be. The same thing in the area of technologies. You know, technologies are transformative not because of their inherent capabilities, but because people and organizations choose to use them in certain ways or choose one set of technologies over another. And the reasons for that are often based in the culture. And finally, leadership, you know, the professional military education and just the experience of, you know, your time in a service gives you exposure to the culture of that service, which may affect the kinds of decisions that you make. So we feel like we really did talk about culture an awful lot, but you don't see the word culture. You don't see it as its own piece of the framework. It is so vital that it affects everything else in that framework that we talked about. 
No, I think I think that's exactly right. And that you know, there there's a variety of different approaches you could take to you know try and come up with a structure to you know make judgments on adaptability. But we thought that those three factors were so fundamental to whether militaries could be effective or not. You know, what what kind of doctrine do they bring to the conflict? Uh, technology and the adaptability, and and we note in both technology and leadership that adaptability takes place both at the tactical level, you know, down on the ground where things happen, where the fighting takes place, you know, where there's junior leaders and and uh, junior soldiers and airmen out there figuring things out on their own. But there's also adaptability that has to take place at the institutional level. You know, doctrine in all services has to get blessed eventually at pretty high levels, and so adapting your doctrine officially has to take place with that process in mind. We, we cite some examples of that during the last uh, two decades there, especially in case of the Army and its counterinsurgency doctrine. But then the leadership at the institutional level, how do you ensure that you know, you're, you're, you may have very adaptable ta- tactical leadership, and we tended to find that was the case in the last you know, two decades of war, but at the institutional level, how adaptable was it? At the, at the theater level, in the case of our, our uh, commanders out there in Iraq and Afghanistan, were they as adaptable as their troops were? And then, again, coming back to technology, we, we saw some uh, what could only be described as horror stories in terms of how adaptable the troops were trying to be to make their equipment and weaponry work in an environment that it really wasn't designed for. And then at the institutional level, back home in the Pentagon, in a lot of cases, how the senior leadership actually you know, fought against some incredibly important changes that needed to happen to protect troops in the field, whether it was fielding MRAPs in in an expeditious way, which took the Secretary of Defense, Bob Gates' personal intervention with a weekly meeting to make that happen, or, you know, in the Army's case, you know, doubling down on its, uh, basically its Cold War version of an advanced intelligence, you know, software, instead of using software that was, was already proven to be very effective in dealing with uh, improvised explosives in in both theaters, so it's a, you know, there's some really really interesting accounts there, and and you know the judgment on that looks pretty good if you're a junior officer or a junior airman or soldier. Does not look nearly as good if you're a senior leader. And in, in, you know the examples primarily in the army that we looked at. To tie in your framework into what we do, I think it's interesting uh, because when we look at doctrine specifically, we are currently advancing the management methodology of the theory of constraints. And that is going to be our new logistics doctrine as to to how we approach uh, uh, production of of maintenance and and logistics and other combat support elements. And and then we look at technology and and we have software programs that are airman focused, uh, airman generated and created with direct feedback. And that tells uh, that tells the Air Force that, hey, we're truly building a culture of of inclusion and, and airman-focused and end-user-focused feedback, right? Because if we were just have these monolithic systems that have existed for the last 10 or 20 years, like, what does that say about our culture? And then leadership, right? At the uh, Within the smallest, uh, well, our team's perspective, like in a microcosm or a flat organization, and we've proven that you can lead with, with no matter what rank you're wearing on your collar, right? And and we've been able to um, level the playing field and go as far to say hack the bureaucracy, you know, the the tactical level has, um, and and truly share what our pain points are, um, you know, as, as an Air Force, as a Department of Defense and inspire others to create change. So all of those together have pushed forward and fostered a, a culture of innovation, at least over the last several years, uh, which has been cool to see. Uh, but I'd like to, uh, to touch on something that you said about uh, and, and critics of doctrine, technology, and leadership, and then the absence of, of culture. Um, who are those critics? And, and what, do they have any valid points? <laughs> well, we just just disagreed with it. I, I you know, it's just a, a different point of view. When I said, you know, we got some criticism for it, there are quite a number of academic studies that put culture as having the main um, explanatory value. And we didn't do that. We looked at culture in a different way. And there were some people, especially, um, you know, one of the reviewers of the manuscript before we uh, su- submitted the final version was very unhappy. We hadn't looked at that explicitly on its own terms. Uh, but our response was, look, culture is everywhere in our book. It's just, you know, we're not putting it in, you know, the, if I use the exact political science language as its own independent variable, right? we're not 
studying it, we're studying its effects. Um, and we thought that was a much better way, frankly, at least for the kinds of questions we were asking, right? We were asking really some very um, profound operational kinds of questions uh, and some strategic ones at that level as well. We just thought that was the better way to approach it. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll leave you and the other readers to determine whether we did our job well. Yeah, I'm not sure we've, you know, this this seems to, to plague us in writing our column on War on the Rocks as well, but w the amount of criticism and feedback we actually get is very limited. And, and uh, you know, you'll, in, you'll see some of it in book reviews, et cetera, but it's, it's very, very muted. So it's actually relatively difficult to, you know, pick out individual critics since the book has been published, certainly, that says they missed this or they should have covered that. Um, so I, I, I'm actually more interested in a way of what kind of effects uh, have the has the book been having over the last couple of years? It's you know it's been at just over two years now, and how to how to measure that? So that that and that in in itself is a significant challenge. You know you can kind of look inside the services and see what they're doing and what they're not doing. We, you know we actually uh, you know we note in our preface to the paperback edition, which is coming out here uh, sometime in the first couple of months of uh, 2023, we note. Uh, one of the the uh, items that we we flagged in the original manuscript was how important organizations like Tesseract are, like the you know these these one-off organizations that were are designed in a sense to work around the bureaucracy to try and find ways to you know upend or outflank all of the bureaucratic rules and regulations that you know tend to imprison you know the services from being able to do things rapidly and and so the organizations like the rapid equipping fielding offices the asymmetrical warfare group in the army you know what we found you know two years on is that these organizations have, have now been inactivated uh so they they actually the services went in the opposite direction of what we recommended which was empower these organizations you know look for ways that they can be more you know, influential inside the service, you use them for the, you know, for the great, you know, incubator of talent that they are and ideas that they are in, in several cases, both at service level and into a degree at the DOD level, uh, with the strategic capabilities office, for example, we, we've seen either the organizations demoted or stuck in some obscure corner of the bureaucracy or, or eliminated altogether, which is, you know, that is not a good indicator that the services are seizing on this, at least this aspect of uh, what we think they could be doing differently. What are some more of those examples that have resonated with both of you about what the military right now is doing right? You know, it, any listener of Tesseract podcast that has listened to a lot of episodes hears me talk about Accelerate, Change, or Lose, of course, right? But then also Force Design 2030. Um, and I'm not quite sure if there's anything is, um, as well known happening in the Navy are happening in the army, or at least it's not as publicized or it hasn't uh, been in the press as much as both Accelerate, Change, or Lose, or Force Design. Um, what have you discovered in the last couple of years? Well, I think one of the things we're, we are clearly a big fan of, we've actually written a couple of columns on this, is uh, what uh, General Dave Berger, the Commandant of the Marine Corps, has been doing in terms of leading the Marines through a transformational change. Uh, that is, you know, created a lot of friction. He's got a, a bevy of retired four-star Marines that are, you know, out, out for his scalp, it would appear, and, uh, you know, in public fora, which is unheard of inside the Marine Corps. But there's a, a pretty robust debate going on that largely from what we see in here, and we certainly agree with this, to, that supports what he's trying to do, which is lighten up the Marine Corps, make it more expeditionary, focus it more on the Pacific, you know, take, take out things that are Army-like and focus on, you know, uh, smaller dispersed units, small ships that are, you know, you know, less, you know, likely to be targets in an environment where there's, you know, long range missiles that are going to take out a number of prominent capital ships potentially in a conflict in the, the Western Pacific. So we, we think he in particular has been doing a, a strikingly noteworthy job, whether he, he can survive and his ideas can survive in the next three or four years is a, is a fair question to ask. And I think the Navy, from my perspective, uh, have not seen, you know, the kind of you know, clear uh, flagged efforts that um, uh, are are at least grab the imagination and show us where the Navy is going. There, and, and 
and they're connected obviously with the Marine Corps in terms of shipbuilding, what the Marines want in terms of amphibious shipbuilding. That that's its own mini controversy that's going on right now. Then the Army is another another story, and we're about to find out more about the Army. We're uh, we're gonna we've started to ha have some conversations with the new Chief of Army Futures Command and his people, and about where that command is going. We got to talk to him when he was the uh, Army G three five seven here just a few weeks ago. So there's you know. The, the jury is out, I think, on, on at least as far as we're concerned, in terms of, you know, what's happening in, in a couple of the services out there. But, but as he said, I think one of our biggest disappointments was finding out that the Army's asymmetric warfare group had been uh, disestablished. Um, we visited, had the opportunity to visit that. We knew of its work beforehand. We were incredibly impressed with the way that they were thinking innovatively about the current conflicts as well as future conflicts. Um, the way that they brought together the ability to marry up uh, new technological uh, ideas and innovations with uh, real world problems that were going on in Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, so many of these organizations, um, you know, they, they may be supported for a while, but in general, and, you know, you watch out for this at Tesseract, right, especially when leadership changes, they become targets precisely because they go around the existing bureaucracy, right? The bureaucracy doesn't like things that go around it and so uh, reaches out to kill it. And that's what happened with the asymmetric warfare group. When we were visiting them, we, uh, you know, uh, we're not quite joking when we said that they should rename themselves the adaptability uh, warfare group or working group or something like that, because that is essentially what they were doing. And I think, you know, asymmetric was easy to target if the, you know, wars in Iraq and Afghanistan were ending and we're focusing more on, you know, China and Russia and all that. But the kinds of things they were doing are exactly the ways that you need to be thinking in a wartime context and how to solve problems quickly. And you can't just stand that up on the first day of a conflict, right? You have to nurture those talents. You have to put that those skills to use even before you start fighting so that they're warm and they're ready when the, the fighting comes. These organizations also uh, you know, represent a, a minuscule investment in the scope of the Defense Department budget, right? So, uh, you know, yes, money is always tight, but this is so important to do. Um, and, you know, it, it really takes the, the continuing support from really the four-star level to keep the bureaucracies from doing their thing and trying to gobble up these organizations that can be so important uh, when the conflict starts. And that's what I also find so fascinating right now within, um, you know, to mention the Air Force and the Marine Corps with having four-star level advocacy and it is a message that is coming from the boss, like the boss. Yet there is still a hesitancy um, in some pockets of um, of the bureaucracy, of the system, of the DOD, whatever you want to call it, um, that are hesitant to change, despite these calls um, to to think differently, to act differently. Um, and General Brown has his famous five. Well, uh, within the Air Force, right, his famous five stages of no, um, hell no, no, we'll think about it, not a bad idea, we should do it, you know, we should be doing it already. <laughs> and then at Tesseract, we uh, we have a, a, a sixth step, which is rename it and move on. So it's funny. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so. Well, what you're describing there is actually not unique to the military. That is a problem that faces all organizations, right? I mean, the parallels between militaries and civilian organizations, you know, there are limits to that kind of comparison. But in the civilian sector, in the business world, this is known as the, the frozen middle, middle management, right? Because you have the CEO saying, this is the bold direction I want to go in. And you have people more at the bottom of the organization who hear the CEO say that and say, yes, that's where we should be going. But why can't I get anything done? And it's because the, the managers in the civilian setting in that middle and the equivalent would be action officers in the Pentagon and, and so on, right? They are, have very strong incentives to be risk averse, right? Change is bad for them. And so, you know, for them to really embrace that vision uh, requires them to change what they do, maybe give up some power, do all sorts of things that uh, they don't have incentives to do. And again, this isn't a military pathology. This happens in the business sector as much as, much as it does in the military. And so, you know, that, that four-star or in the civilian world CEO 
sponsorship of that is, is necessary, but it's not always sufficient, right? They have to follow up and make sure that that message is getting down, that it's getting implemented, that they can break through what the business literature calls the frozen middle in order to really get those ideas implemented. Now, and we're going to touch on, well, I plan on touching on PME in a little bit later in this conversation, but I think this is the, the right time to, to bring it up. Um, I mean, recently this year, the Space Force came out with using Johns Hopkins as their institution, you know, for uh, professional military education, or at least an extension of it. Uh, so they must have read your book. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm assuming the Space Force read your book. Um, for the record, I want to say neither of us had anything to do with the decision to bring Space Force to <laughs> Johns Hopkins sites. We were informed with that when the general public was. So I don't know what they were reading, but, you know, the two of us were not involved in that. That said, in general, that is in line with one of the most important recommendations that both of us think the book contains, which is that civilian graduate education needs to be expanded for the leaders of the future. We were focusing mostly on officer PME, but you know, for it's it's just as true for people like you. If you're going to, you know, anyone who goes to graduate school, you're going to get a totally different perspective and a different degree of rigor, frankly, at a civilian graduate school that you will not get in a PME program. That is not necessarily the fault of the PME institutions, but just by the very nature of the population of the people who sit in a seminar room at the war college level, for example, because we focus more on, on you know, senior leaders, that's the level of, of PME that we mostly look at in the book. But the people sitting around the seminar table are all basically the same kinds of people. There may be outward markers of diversity like gender or race or, or ethnicity, but they all have the same life experience, right? They're all people who at that point, if you're talking about the senior service colleges, have spent you know, anywhere between 18 and 22 years in uniform. The way they think is much more similar than, than it would be to any other group of folks. Some of the war colleges do bring in a handful of civilians. They bring in international officers. International officers in many ways have the same mindset, uh, particularly when they're from our allies. You know, they don't, they might contribute different international strategic perspectives, but they also still think like military people. As we both know, uh, Dave, from being a student and both of us from teaching, and as you now know from uh, being a, a student at Georgetown, when you are in a classroom with civilians as a military person, you are exposed to ideas you will never, ever hear from someone in the military. It is foundational in our classes. We usually have a really nice balance in the classes that the two of us teach between military students who are there doing, uh, you know, as part of their PME programs, they've got, you know, a year or two to spend at SICE, and the civilian students, in some cases, who are just a couple of years out of grad school or are foreign service officers or have, um, you know, uh, deployed uh, for in, you know, development operations or humanitarian emergencies around the world. And the conversations they have because of their different life experiences, the conversations you have with faculty who don't just come from a military mindset, is absolutely essential for being a strategic leader at the highest levels of the military. I would, I've often said that the most important education I had for my last 10 years in uniform, including being the commander in Afghanistan for 19 months, was the two years I spent at Georgetown in the security studies program as a graduate student. And, and for exactly the reasons that Nora brings out is that I, you know, for the first time in my military career, and I was a you know, young captain, uh, junior major at the time, you know, 32 years old. Uh, and for the first time in my military career, I was actually around people that weren't in uniform and weren't, you know, sergeants and captains and lieutenant colonels. And they were, their ideas were completely different. They were, you know, from the State Department. They were from the intelligence community. They were from defense industry. Uh, they were on Capitol Hill as staffers. They were people just coming out of undergrad. And, and so you had an age variety, you had a background variety, you certainly had an ideology variety and a politics variety. And, and just being able to, to communicate with them and learn how to talk in a language that could be absorbed by people that, you know, don't wear camouflage uniforms every day was an incredibly valuable, you know, skill set to develop and also to 
to have them, you know, listen to what I had to say and me listen to what they had to say and, and try to comprehend that. And so I, one, one of the things I found most useful is, you know, in particularly my time in Afghanistan is the ability to build a relationship with someone that was totally unlike you in background or outlook. And I, I was able to do that again and again and again there uh, with either Afghans or UN officials or ambassadors from other countries, you know, all, all manner of people that were not military people. And those relationships are incredibly important. And you learn how to communicate and you learn how to build those relationships in an environment where you're not surrounded by simply your peers. And that's one of the, the you know, almost inevitable criticisms we would have to make of the military PME programs. It, it's, you know, it's a snow globe of people that you know, are living in the same world with the same experience. You know, if you look at the shoes under the table, they're, they're all bought at the PX and they're all, you know, combat boots or, you know, shiny loafers. And, and they're not, you know, in age, uh, background, politics, ideology, you know, terribly uniform relative to what you might find in a, in a civilian graduate environment. Uh, bring it full circle with that innovation piece is building a foundation, or at least the, the roots of of a foundation uh, to build an adaptable force, right? Um, but not everyone is in peacetime right now. What would be different now if you wrote your book and published your book now in, in, in present day? One of the things we do say, you know, we occasionally get asked the question, who has the most adaptable military in the world? And when we wrote the book, we would have answered that imperfect, but probably the most adaptable military in the world is the U.S. military. If you were to ask us that question today, we would almost assuredly say it's the Ukrainian military. And, and because we've watched them since February again and again and again and again adapt to the situation they're in in every in, in virtually every one of the domains we talked about in doctrine and technology and leadership uh, to do things that really exemplify best practices in how to be adaptable in every single one of those particular dimensions. And, and uh, that that's a rare thing to see. The flip side of that is we've seen the Russians who are also adapting. You know, we, we there's a uh, kind of a false narrative out there that the Russians are just stuck in place and they haven't adapted. They've adapted as well. They're just adapting more slowly and, and less effectively than the Ukrainians are, which is a lesson about war in and of itself, is that it's a constant adaptation, counter adaptation battle that goes on and on and on. And the, the side who has the quicker cycle in that and, and is more adaptable and, and is aware that they're going to have to continue to do it as their adversary changes is going to have a major, major advantage. So so here you have a relatively small country, you know, being invaded by a major power with a huge military that's, you know, sells arms all over the world and is essentially has held their own for the last 10 months, which is stunning, and, and have inflicted incredible losses on the Russians by being incredibly adaptable, just not the, the things that they started the war with, but bringing all kinds of new things on board, not just on the military side, but adapting civilian technology, everything from Starlink and its ability to you know provide battlefield, essentially broadband across the country to do intelligence reporting to you know commercial drones and military drones that they're buying from other countries. It, it is, it's a case study in incredibly impressive adaptation in my view. Do you have any thoughts on the way the Ukrainians have leveraged the information space in particular? I think they, they have a bit of an advantage because they're the underdog in this conflict. So they they have played that extraordinarily well. Uh, and the, the fact that they've got a wartime leader who is Churchillian in his you know, his language, his demeanor, his ability in, in the same way in the 21st century that Churchill was in the 20th century, his ability to dominate, you know, the media space with the power of his own personality, not only inside of his own country and the leadership, the very genuine leadership he's providing there, but but he is the public persona around the world of this conflict. You know, he, the, you, you see him on television in his green T-shirt, you know, making addresses to Congress, talking to the North Atlantic Council, you know, interacting with foreign leaders that come to visit. I mean, he he himself has uh, is probably the master of this. And ironically, coming from a, a show business background and probably has a better understanding of the power of image than almost any other international leader might. So that that has been an immense advantage that uh, the Ukrainians have played you know, to the the absolute, you know, perfect advantage for them um, by, you know, it's not just a technolo technological edge that they've gotten. They they have cornered that market in terms of their image uh, around the world. You know, we, we actually use in one of our classes uh, back in the spring, the 
the uh, Ghost of Kiev, which is a uh, actually turned out to be a fictitious story of a Ukrainian fighter pilot who was, you know, bravely taking down Russian aircraft that were attacking, you know, the the city. It, and it and it played out over a couple of weeks. And it, at the end of the day, it turned out that this was, you know, it, if it was not a fabricated account, it was a misleading account that was promoted widely around the West. Uh, that that everybody was cheering for this incredible fighter pilot. It did ultimately didn't even exist. And so, you know, that harks back in some ways to World War II propaganda and the effectiveness that used by the Allies as well as by, you know, the the Axis powers during that war. So it is things that we really didn't expect to see out of a, you know, a small country in Eastern Europe. I, I agree with all that. I, I would go beyond that, though, and say that the the war in Ukraine gives the U.S. military and, frankly, other militaries around the world an opportunity to learn in real time about what the ways in which new technologies are shaping the character of war, right? We're seeing things on the battlefield uh, in, in, you know, in Ukraine, uh, largely from the Ukrainian side, but, but even to a lesser extent from the Russian side that we never expected we would see that, you know, as recently as a few years ago, we're still somewhere out there in the future, right? The way that drones have been used, for example, commercial drones largely, um, for intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance, the fact that exact target coordinates uh, have been, um, uh, you know, found by civilians using commercial drones and then communicated to other civilians over Twitter, who then can use their own commercial drones to attack them without the Ukrainian military being involved is nothing short of transformational. Right. So we're seeing the debut of some of the advanced technologies that people like all of us who think about the future of warfare knew were coming, but we're now seeing it. We should be really ruthlessly thinking about what we should be learning from this battlefield and how it affects us in the future. For example, uh, we wrote a, a column at War on the Rocks that was published, uh, I think it was in July, maybe it was June about lessons that the army in particular as the nation's biggest ground force should be taking from the war. And uh, I'll share one of the most controversial ones with you. Uh, we wrote that uh, one of the things that the US Army should consider is that helicopters are no longer survivable on the battlefield. This got us hate mail from the future vertical lift task force folks who were, you know, trying to procure new helicopters and they were, you know, ready to send us all the, you know, we have clearances. So they're like, come in, we'll give you a classified briefing on all the specs and all of the capabilities. And to our view, and based on what we wrote in the column, they may have the best capabilities in the world, but it's irrelevant if because of the transparency of the battlefield that we're seeing in Ukraine, because of the ability to spot things, because it's becoming so difficult to hide when you have drones and commercially available space that has resolution that rivals military satellites now. The best helicopters in the world are not going to be able to fly if their bases are targeted. And if you're a smart adversary, that's what you'll do. And you will have the ability to see them and the capability to destroy them more than ever before. So I'm not, we weren't necessarily saying that, you know, helicopters will never be useful again, but that's an example of some really, some really uncomfortable questions that we at least need to be asking about what the current transparency of the battlefield, because of a lot of these advanced technologies that we see, what does that really mean for our ability to fight a future war, whether it's against Russia or whether it's against China, or frankly, even if it ends up being another irregular warfare or counterinsurgency, right? It's gonna be profoundly different just because of that. We have to be looking at Ukraine and saying what lessons there have implications for us that will force us to do things differently in the future. The the future battle space and something that you were saying, you know, sparked my my memory of later in the book. You talk about uh, General Milley describing the future battlefield for, you know, for an infantryman, like, and it's going to be the most exhausting it has ever been, because um, there's going to be nowhere to hide. There's going to be you're always going to be visible to the enemy probably one of the most poignant pieces in the book when when he was talking about hey look um i i can't even imagine being an infantryman in a future fight um just because of all the uh technologies that uh that exist and let's take a a, a step back into history i think one of my favorite case studies uh, in the book um is the burma campaign 
<laughs> I knew you were going to say that, and you just made him so happy because that's one of his favorite cases too. <laughs> I it resonates with me so much because it talks about uh, you know something that we're passionate about here. You know, at Tesseract is you know building an organization that is psychologically safe to exchange ideas, right? And and not often do you read case studies where you have organizations that can communicate from the tactical level all the way up to the strategic level and informs uh, you know the operational art and, and strategic level decisions. What made the Burma campaign so successful and how the British Army was able to communicate up and down the chain of command so successfully? It, it, it's one of my favorite case studies. You know, I, I read that book many, many years ago, and, and it, it uh, it's uh, Field Marshal William Slim, who was the uh, commander ultimately of all the British forces in uh, in what we would call an economy of force theater today, where you you make the most of the minimum amount of resources that you're going to be given, because in his case, the resources were going to fight the Germans in Europe and the Japanese elsewhere in the Pacific, and he was you know stuck off in a corner. And he, he had led a mil part of that army that had been badly defeated by the Japanese in the opening you know year of the war. So he he was coming off a immense defeat of his force, which is the name of the book, Defeat into Victory, and then figure out a way to rebuild this force without having a whole lot of resources over the next year or two, go back on the offensive and finally uh, defeat that same Japanese army by 1945. So it's a great account. And um, it, it that that particular uh, memoir is considered by by many, myself included, as the best memoir from World War II commanders. It, it's the most honest. It gets you into the day to day life that he lived there, and you know takes you inside of his head uh, in ways that are very very candid, much more so than most most commanders uh, are willing to share in terms of what their their foibles and their flaws were. And, and he goes to the point of saying, you know, once again he was. He was basically rescued by the stubborn valor of his troops from his own stupidity on a number of occasions. So, you know, not not the level of uh, humility you often associate with senior military commanders. I might I might add. So, uh, very very impressive guy. And what what's interesting in that too is in in our account we chose it as one of our case studies is that the amount of time he would spend going out to talk to small units all across his force. He had, you know, a a really diverse group of. Uh, organizations from all over the British Empire who spoke a myriad of different languages, uh, who all performed different tasks inside of his uh, his army there in uh, in India and in, later in Burma. And he he went out to see each of those units. He actually tried to learn a bit of their language and gave you know his uh, his jeep top talks to a number of these units in in their language. Uh, just to connect with him, but but he was very unassuming. He was a listener. Uh, he did not, you know, have a big staff, a big entourage that went around with him everywhere he went. And I think one of the things that that came through to me, at least, is he was willing to be wrong. He was willing to change. He was willing to try new ideas and see what worked and what didn't. And he was he was keen on ensuring that you know his army's confidence was restored by having small successes that would build on themselves. So, and he got a lot of that, I think, from trusting his junior commanders, talking to them. You know, instilling confidence in them, being absolutely honest with them that they were at the end of the pipeline and they were not going to have a lot of resources, they were not going to get a lot of help, and they were still going to win. They were still going to be successful. So he is, he in my my view, is uh, in a lot of ways the model commander for someone who's uh, particularly serving in a in a theater that is not you know flooded with the resources that we often expect in in uh, the American way of war. Sometimes I, I got to experience a bit of that in Afghanistan for certain when I was when I was there during the early days. And, and some of the most creative use of air power that we saw anywhere in the war, I think, that, that helped give them an advantage, that helped take them to success. Mm -hmm. Do you want to dive into that a little bit more? Uh, a bit. Uh, um, I'm an air power advocate. I'm an, an aviation enthusiast, too. So I, I actually look at that stuff pretty carefully. And, and Slim was able to actually move divisions by air to places where the Japanese ever expected them to show up. Uh, cut landing strips out of the jungle and bring in, you know, uh, aircraft we would call medevacs today, bring in small, you know, Piper Cubs to evacuate casualties. So he did a brilliant job getting his casualties out of inaccessible terrain by, you know, using, you know, small elements of air power. And he, he really forged a very close relationship with his air commander 
Uh, this is where the, the term air commandos com comes from, that part of the, the world in World War II, to use them in some very, very creative ways, primarily in, in logistics and moving his troops around the theater, but also in you know supporting his force with firepower to you know be able to do medical evacuations, reconnaissance, and other things in, in totally inaccessible terrain. This is a this was a theater that essentially had virtually no roads. The rivers were more important for transport than the roads were. So he brought the the air dimension of that in ways that a you know a ground commander would not normally be uh, thought of as the accelerator for, let's say. Mm -hmm. What do you think is going to remain the same, you know, in the next 10 years? Because I know your work is mostly uh, focused on change and adaptation, of course, but, but what do you think is going to remain the same? Well, we actually teach a course called The Human Face of Battle. We just finished uh, our last lesson of that. We have almost 30 papers coming in today uh, for grading for the uh, end of the semester here. So, <laughs> but but we we decided to teach that course a number of years ago because we realized there was such a, you know, deep disconnect between the young men and women here in Washington that would go into policymaking roles, either on Capitol Hill or, you know, in the White House, now Security Council, even in the Pentagon or State Department, and, and those that actually, you know, go out in the, in the military and fight those wars. And, and we wanted to bring home to our students, what what you're actually asking those men and women to do? What's it like to, you know, we have a lesson on on killing. We have a lesson on fear and courage and heroism. A lesson on dealing with casualties. You know, we have four dark weeks in the course that really get at the, you know, the really difficult, gritty issues of you know fighting and what it does to the people that fight. Then we look at a, a broad range of other things. You know, small unit leadership in combat. You know what the environment's like in combat when you're not fighting generalship at war. We look at women and minorities and in conflicts over over uh, U.S. history and how that's played out. Uh, and then we we go to the future war towards the end of it and talk a bit about civil military relations as well. So it's a fairly comprehensive course, but it it really is an eye opener for those those uh, students that have not served in the military, which usually is three quarters of them at least. And they walk out of there with a totally different understanding of what war is all about. And I think that human dimension of war, as we look ahead over the next 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, uh, is liable to remain very much the same as long as humans are at risk. And that's a, a subset field to go down in terms of autonomy and the impacts of that on warfare, of course. But as long as humans are going to continue to fight, continue to be at risk, continue to be you know, out there contesting these battles. And we might find that there are more humans at risk in home countries now than there have ever been before. We've kind of discounted that that possibility in our uh, our recent past. So I think that uh, those that aspect of, you know, fear, courage, honor, and interest is going to remain the same in warfare. And we'll have to see how the autonomous dimension may tweak that a little bit as time goes on. But I still think that that will, that will be a fundamental aspect of what war is all about and what makes it different than in any other form of human endeavor. Yeah, I was also uh, smiling when you asked that question, because as he mentioned, we have those final exams coming in actually just a couple of hours after we uh, finish recording this podcast with you. And that's one of our final exam questions, which is what does the human face of battle look like in the future? Because we do spend time talking about the technology and drones and, and all of that. Um, most of them, uh, who they have other questions they can choose. It's a choice. But uh, we've asked that question for a number of years now, and it's very hard to make a compel. We're open to the idea, but it's very hard to make a compelling argument that those human qualities and that humans on the battlefield aren't going to be there, that it goes to all tech. Um, you know, they almost always come up with arguments that talk about what, you know, the, that humans are still crit absolutely critical to that, no matter what the technology is. Again, you know, you, you can argue it the other way, but it's hard to do. Uh, that humans won't be part of that, right? Because that's what conflict is. It's, it's uh, you know, unfortunately, it's an inherent part of human nature. That's why, you know, we do what we do. That's why there need to be departments of defense and militaries, right? That's, you know, humans go to war with each other, whether you like that or not. Um, and so the tools may change. The technologies always change, right? That's Clausewitz. The, the character of war always changes, even if the fundamental nature doesn't. But that nature is about clashes between human beings. And no matter, in my mind, no matter how advanced the technologies get, um, you may need fewer people, you may use them in different ways, but ultimately at the end of the day, warfare is about people in conflict. And it's it's really hard to see how that would not be the case. Uh, I'd like to mention another organization that um, uh, that has really caught my eye in the last uh, couple of years, 
Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Brute Crew Lock Center of Innovation and Future Warfare. Um, it's a it's an office that is out of Marine Corps University, and they essentially level the playing field when it comes to uh, to PME, uh, and they allow airmen or not airmen. Um, they they allow Marines to come in and collaborate and and war game together, right? And you have uh, you have E fives, you know, yet you have sergeants that get to war game against you know full bird colonels, right? And all different occupational specialties um, and, and MOSs that are able to uh, you know challenge their thought processes and see how other people react, right? The the crew lock center is a great representation of um, what the DoD is doing right and um, kind of highlights what uh, you're getting after here with um, you know introducing uh, individuals. Uh, younger in their career in, in their military career um, to uh, influence thought and and challenge um, the status quo. Yeah, I think that that is important, but uh, this isn't necessarily a knock on the Krulak Center. But what you were talking about uh, made me think about one of the other recommendations in our book, which is the military as a whole really needs to diversify the people who play on its red teams, particularly in major exercises. Again, you know, I'm going off of what you said, but I'm not saying specifically about that center. Mm -hmm. um, we had the opportunity several years ago to visit uh, a uh, a command that was responsible for thinking about the future. Um, and I, as a now 50 year old woman dropped the average age and I was the only woman to be seen in the entire place of the people who were thinking about the future and red teaming uh, ideas that came out. And that's not sufficient, right? All of the, the vast majority, I think all of the people were not just former military, but retired military, right? Invested in US military concepts for their whole careers. That's typically who plays in red teams, right? Because they're contractors, they're easy to get. That is exactly the wrong audience to be your red team. I want an 18 year old civilian who knows how to hack to think creatively uh, about how they would approach that. I want you to have, you know, different people from the civilian sector who aren't vested in military concepts, you know, educated folks, people who speak military, who can have a security clearance, but are not part and parcel of that because otherwise we engage in the worst sort of mirror imaging when we develop our concepts. So at, for an educational purpose for something like the Krulak Center, I think wargaming, you know, across ranks and stuff, that is a great idea because that does, does give you some diversity of military um, opinions. And also by getting the young people in, you get all of the civilian tech, which none of the people who are, you know, wear stars on their shoulder have any familiarity with, um, you know, because they're not natives of that generation, right? They're asking their kids or grandkids for help. And you would rather, it's better to just get those young people in to tell you themselves, right? But you need that kind of diversity to really ensure that our concepts are, you know, approaches everything that we justify in terms of weapon systems from these major war games, that they're actually the right kinds of investments. And I don't think we do a good job of that at all. Yeah, I think the the voice and the vision of um, uh, the frontline leaders, right, and frontline airmen, soldiers, sailors, uh, Marines is, is critical, and finding mechanisms to have that voice heard is um is is crucial to building that foundation for an adaptable force in, in my opinion um and when looking at uh, some of the 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 greatest stories of adaptation in, in my opinion come from you know to dive back into history a little bit um the interwar period in world war ii whether you're talking about uh, i've mentioned air rated uh runways before in the past and that was developed by a sergeant the rhino tank developed by a sergeant I know you talk about that in detail in your book. And and what I find just so incredible is the tool is developed, it works, and it takes it takes a four-star to be like, hey, yo, <laughs> why are we doing this? Right. Uh you know, why why isn't this a thing? I see um a, a correlation between an adaptation like the Rhino Tank with uh, tools and techniques and processes that young warfighters are making today, wh wh whether it's with a 3D printer, 
or whether it's in a welding and machine shop. And that was actually my trade before I came over here to Tesseract. That was a, a, a aircraft metals technology where we would make stuff, whether it's a custom tool um, or part that exceeded the capabilities of something, uh, something that already existed. And all it takes is now an, uh, a warfighter with CAD on their computer to devise something that is is far superior and then a lot of those things that are devised are lost in translation they either stay at that shop they stay at that unit whether it's at a squadron whether it's at a battalion uh whether it's at you know even the uh you know the division level or the wing level whatever uh joint organization you know we want to talk about here um but elevating the the voices of of those warfighters and 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 having you know, you know, and having that senior leader advocacy is important. Um, but, but yeah, now I'm on another little rant here. My brain's just going. I, I love y'all's work. <laughs> well, but you've you've highlighted one of the key findings of the book from Iraq and Afghanistan. I mean, you're talking about today, but you know that that's the the short version of our findings, right? That adaptability at the tactical levels was really very impressive in both Iraq and Afghanistan and and for understandable reasons right you know if you're on the you know if you're in combat if your life is on the line you have extremely strong incentives to figure out ways uh to you know prevent the the adversary from killing you right and so we found in case after case when we looked at the tactical level really extraordinary efforts by young uh, we were looking mostly at soldiers and marines uh you know but really impressive efforts to try to address the problems that they faced right where did the problems arise it wasn't at the tactical level it was at the institutional levels right when you got to the higher levels particularly when we look at technology where you need to go back to the pentagon uh to get you know uh technologies that even with the best of efforts you just couldn't develop in the field like you couldn't adapt the mraps you couldn't up armor them enough effectively even even though people made heroic efforts to do that, it was never going to solve, be able to solve the problem, no matter how inspired those you know, young soldiers were. Um, and, but when you get up to the institutional level, there were manifold problems, as we alluded to before, and as you can read in the book. And we see that also in terms of um, you know, leadership decisions and uh, you know, uh, implementing new doctrine at the tactical levels, great successes, but uh, at some of the senior leader levels, um, notable failures. One of the you know examples in the book that I think is is so instructive um, is the example of George Casey when he was the commander in Iraq, who was someone who talked about the need for counterinsurgency. He founded a counterinsurgency academy. He said that this was his highest priority. And yet he held two assumptions that he never revisited throughout the war, that we U.S. forces were creating the security problem and therefore needed to be kept away from populations and that the, the political problems needed to be solved first before the military could uh, do things, not recognizing that in a situation like that, you need security before there's any chance for the political process to unfold. That led him, those the fact that he never challenged those two assumptions undermined every other single thing he did in theater talking about counterinsurgency, right? He never questioned his most basic assumptions uh, and how they were interfering with what his goals were. And, and I bring that up all the time when talking to audiences about the book, because to me, the biggest takeaway from that and the single biggest thing you can do to improve your adaptability is to identify what your assumptions are and always question them. Right. That sounds obvious. That's, uh, you know, seems like a pretty straightforward thing to say. But when you're in the middle of something, taking a step back and saying, what am I doing? What am I assuming? And is that right or wrong? Does that need to adjust? Um, there actually have been some really significant problems with that at the most senior levels in the recent wars. Yeah. And as we look at, uh, you know, challenging our assumptions, usually when we go to people, it's not to get feedback, it's to get validation, right. you know, and then we find ourselves in this, uh, in this vicious cycle. But as we uh, wrap up here, do you have any final thoughts, anything that we didn't cover that, that you would like to touch on? One thing I think that's an institutional constraint that we need to be at least aware of because it will affect uh, and maybe drive our 
ability to adapt in future conflicts in in this is uh, it, it's going to be very difficult to uh get around this in in the thought is that the US military maybe more so than any military in the world is kind of in a uh prison of legacy technology uh, that it has invested for so many years in such advanced technology uh, that it, it has got some immense sunk costs in things like, you know, large aircraft carriers and manned short-range fighters and, you know, manned bombers and, you know, armored fighting vehicles, all of which are, with very few exceptions, at the very top end of their technology curve that, that date their origins back to somewhere in the early or mid-20th century. So in each of those cases, you know, whether it's the F-35 or the Ford-class carrier or the M1 tank, or the the future you know vertical lift program for the army you're you're squeezing the last elements of the technological capability out of that particular platform and your adversaries are not constrained by that particular prison you we you know if you look at how much of our defense budget and acquisition goes into those platforms uh, that are really legacy platforms that don't have a lot of additional technological growth in them we're 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 over investing in that and we're under investing in breaking new technologies that may in fact actually you know undercut the ability for those legacy technologies to function you know the what's happening with drones in in uh in ukraine on all different levels there's three or four or five different levels of how to think about drones and look at drones in that conflict we we don't have anything that replicates that in in more frightening i'm afraid if that was aimed in our direction we would have an immense amount of difficulty defending against that protecting you know vital assets against that protecting large platforms against you know the the diversity of drone threats that could emanate from an adversary who doesn't have nearly as much money but is using it in very very clever ways it's a, this democratization of technology out there so i think we've got to be conscious that we're 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 operating in some ways at a baked in disadvantage because we have so much invested in technologies that are at the very top end of what they can possibly produce and that keeps us from being as willing to you know cut away some of those resources and put them against some perhaps less proven less visible you know less uh, you know deeply resourced defense technologies defense industries as, as a carrier or an aircraft uh, might be today but we, we are we are at, at some risk because of how we're institutionally structured around those platforms i guess my my final thought that i'd like to leave you with is the the urgency of focusing on adaptability and for the u.s military to get even better at adapting than it is uh, as as dave mentioned earlier you know one of the questions we often get when we talk about the book um is a version of well you know if isn't the us still the best at this you know aren't we still better than our potential adversaries and even when we you know leave the ukrainians aside we still think they're you know the most adaptable right now um but the argument you know that we made in response is yes the us military probably is still the most adaptable in the world but that's not necessarily enough because the us military has more to adapt to than any of our potential adversaries right if i'm china and i look at the world i know who my major adversary is going to be it's going to be the us and its allies in the pacific if i'm russia and i look beyond ukraine right who are who's going to be my major adversary it's going to be the united states and the nato allies or as in the case of ukraine maybe you know uh, countries that they choose to assist who are not allies in eastern europe those are very concrete problems that you can plan against if i'm the united states i don't know whether i'm fighting russia or china and even there those are two such different contingencies in different domains right one is primarily a land problem the other is primarily an air and naval problem even right there I've got two totally different kinds of military operations, but that's not even the whole scenario space, right? I also have to be thinking about a, you know, a uh, conventional power like Iran and North Korea and some of the non-conventional weapons that we assume both of them have. I don't know whether the next conflict that the U.S. is a party to isn't going to be something like another Afghanistan, which is totally not on our radar screen right now, but some huge thing will happen tomorrow that will raise it to the top of our strategic priority. And I don't know if it's going to be dealing with non-state actors somewhere who are either conducting terrorist operations or directly targeting the homeland. Right. So the U.S. military can be the most adaptable military in the world, other than the Ukrainians right now, and still be not adaptable enough. Right. Because just because the scope of what we might face as a global power is so big. And, and I worry that 
uh, we're a little too complacent about our ability to rapidly shift if our preconceived idea of what the next war is going to look like isn't right. We start the book, and I guess I'll end this interview with the, the infamous quote from uh, Bob Gates when he was Secretary of Defense, where he said, the U.S. has a perfect war since Vietnam of predicting the next war. We have never once gotten it right. Right. And I think that that's likely to be true in the future because it's not because we're, you know, there, there's a particular pathology, but it's just it's really hard to predict the future. And when at a time when we seem to be all in on China and, you know, Russia to a lesser extent, if those aren't the major contingencies that we're next involved in, if they don't unfold in exactly the way that we see, we're going to have a lot of adapting to do. And I worry that our planning focus on those scenarios, while important, blinds us to the need that we might have to do something very different very quickly. And we may not be as prepared for that as we need to be. Um, well, thank you two so much for your time. This has been amazing. Um, <laughs> I, I appreciate y'all's work and, uh, just for our listeners, any of my good friends or anyone that's ever been in a meeting with me, hears me recommend all sorts of different books. Um, uh, but I'd like to personally recommend again, adaptation under fire, um, just an outstanding, uh, text, anyone that's in what is called the quote unquote air force innovation ecosystem or any other uh, part of the Department of Defense. I think it's a must read and uh, has to be on your bookshelf or your desk or your nightstand. So I appreciate you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having us. We really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks, Matt. It was terrific. Look forward to staying in touch. Thank you again for listening to Tesseract Podcast. Make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and connect with us on LinkedIn. Any references to trademarked, copyrighted, or protected products or services such as books, movies, or businesses are used here for the limited purpose of education and professional development of Air Force Airmen. If you have any questions, please contact us at www.tesseract.af.mil.